0: Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast. There was no comment left on chapter 3.1, so let's continue reading chapter 3. I have no comment, um, other than I would like to finish this book now, so let's read the rest of chapter 3. The strong and healthy man refrains from women. Oh yeah, wait, my comment's this. I did have a discussion prompt. I forgot about this. George has proven himself racist, misogynistic. And into incest as well. Um, But in this chapter particularly so far, just very misogynistic. Just the way he's talking about women, I find very distasteful. I wonder if anyone else feels the same way. The strong and healthy man refrains from women. And when I asked him if he always refrained from them himself, he said he refrained as long as he could and advocated a strong and energetic life to me. He said he would like to see me shoulder a gun and go away not to scotland to shoot grouse but to africa every young man should go forth and lead a natural life abyssinia was often mentioned and to discover the source of the nile was held up to me as an ambition suitable to my healthy my health and my fortunes i should come back a far finer man than i went Alice Harford and Annie Temple were probably given to us so that we might resist their seductions, which were very trivial to a man who had got anything in him. And if Abyssinia and the source of the Nile appeared to slight an an adventure, there remained the Sahara and the mountains of the moon and Timbuktu, where no European had been, but which a determined man might reach. And in his imagination, Jim would roam through the great equatorial forests filled with He said, "'Cities, relics of a civilization that had passed away now, inhabited only by lions, and to encourage me to accept an African adventure, he would pull out a picture of a troop of elephants plunging through some reeds into a river while a gorilla disported himself on the branches of a dead tree. This led us to consider the exploits of Du Chelyu, who had shot the first gorilla. The animal had approached, thumping his breast with his fists.' and the sound that he produced was that of a big drum. Du had, however, knelt, unmoved, saying to himself, Not yet. The gorilla approached another ten steps, and Du said, Not yet. And again the gorilla approached, and Du said, Fire! And the gorilla rolled over dead at Du feet, after twisting the rifle as if it were a bit of wire. Jim admired such nerve as this, and it recalled to him, An excellent shot he had made years ago when he was staying at Moor Hall. He had said he would like to shoot a martin, and he had taken a rifle with him. Martins were rare even at that time, and he had caught sight of one at the end of a branch, and had shot it, and the incident had inspired him to think that he would like to wait for a line in the moonlight at the foot of a tree. A moment like that is worth living for, and exalted by the thought he would seize his palette and paint cane amid the rocks by the sea under the darkening sky. His arm thrown about his sleeping sister, a spear within his right arm, and as if the terrific lion stealing down upon him were not sufficient terror, Jim would sketch a lioness and her whelps in the background as all the beasts in the picture were roaring. Jim roared in accompaniment. While whirling a mass of vermilion and white upon his palette, and then uttering a deep growl, he would rush forward and red tongue would appear, and when he had mixed emerald green with white, he would advance some paces cat-like, and then snarling would leap forward, and a moment after a great green eye started out of the darkness. He retreated to watch the effect of his work, and in the frenzy of creation, soliloquized, explaining to himself and to me the reason why his pictures were refused by the Academy. The art that had academicians shins catered for was a meanly realistic art, and for them to accept his picture of Cain defending his wife from wild beasts, the lion's mane would have to be painted from the bearskin rug, every hair put in, and the dove that Jim's memory of Alice Harford had rescued from Cupid, and which she clasped to her bosom, would have to be studied from a dead pigeon sent round from the poulterer's Alice's great blonde body was finely conceived, and the movement of her shoulders bending over the eager boy was well enough, somewhat rudimentary, but better in a way than the frigid sophistications that pass for art in Burlington House. If he had nothing else, he had the sense of the noble and the beautiful. But was he speaking the whole truth when he said that the academicians would hang the picture if every feather were imitated? from real feathers. Did he believe it to be as well painted as the Correggio in the National Gallery? Was the modelling of that shoulder altogether faultless? Was it not emptier than the Correggio? Was not the Correggio more real? At that moment it became clear to me that the feet were not as beautiful as those in the bright picture of the Italian master, and That Jim could not make them as beautiful, for he had not learned to draw and to paint from nature. If he had gone to the academy schools and subjected his genius to discipline, he might have been the great painter of modern times. But I could not see Jim attending the academy schools, drawing patiently from the model, working out the shadows with a stump. My thoughts have must have stopped there if they ever got quite so far, and now the explanation of the enigma seems to me that Jim was one born due, born before due time and out of due place, in Mayo in 1830, for his talent to have ripened fully, he should have been born in Venice in 1660. His mentality was of that period, and his appearance coincided with his talent. Splendid shoulders, fine head upreared, an overmodelled brow, a short aquiline nose, proud nostrils, long languid hands, but why enumerate a portrait by Van Dyck? Get out of my way, he cried, and squeezing out the best part of a tube of raw umber into his palette and breaking it with a little black, he whisked into Lion's tail, and with another brush sought out the yellow ochre and the naples yellow, and Cain's wife received such a dower of tresses that I was thrilled. It was my sense of voluptuous and romantic that drew me to Jim and his pictures, and I remember him crossing the room one day and seeking among the canvases, and returning with a small one, six feet by four, in which a brown satyr overtook a nymph in the corner of a wood. My eyes dilated, and I licked my lips. The best thing you have ever painted in your life, Jim. Why do you turn it away to the wall? He murmured something about his sisters, who sometimes came into the room unexpectedly, and throwing himself on the sofa, melted into another of those long soliloquies who were very dear to me at that time a flow of talk of Michelangelo, Rubens, and Raphael. And mixed with his remembrances of the pictures he had seen in Italy were remembrances of pictures and statues that he had modelled and painted himself the colossal statue of Caracatacus. That he had exhibited in London when he was seventeen, and the great picture of the Battle of Arbella, forty feet wide by twenty feet high, containing several life-size elephants. At that time he had painted and modelled in the same studio, leaving the picture for the statue and the statue for the picture, and my admiration roused. I begged him to tell me, where were these pictures and this statue?' But without answering my question, he broke into a criticism of Rai Schaeffer's picture of the devil offering Christ the kingdom of earth. If he could cast himself down and worship him, Christ raises his hand and the gesture portrays the famous words, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, while the devil points downward. The two men are speaking at the same time. And in your picture, Jim, Christ listens while the devil offers him the earth he answered, and he did not speak again for a long time, so that I might be better appreciate his genius. An intense moment of appreciation was when he said that no gallery in the world afforded so many beautiful pictures to his sight, as did a dirty ceiling. He had only to half close his eyes to see last judgments, finer than Michelangelo's, and he closed his eyes a little, he could rediscover the, his Battle of Arabella. The lost picture, I said, but Jim, the satyr returning the nymph, is he visible in the ceiling above your head? Jim laughed. Perhaps not in this ceiling, but in the ceiling above the little sofa at Alice Harford's. These lapses of humour jarred a little, and I was glad when he lowered his eyes from the ceiling and remained quite still, considering the picture of the nymph and the satyr, and I thrilled again when he said, That picture has all the beauties of Raphael and other beauties besides. In youth, one likes exaggeration, and in response to my cry for art, Jim said, If you want to learn painting, you must go to France. His words were like all ashore. The vessel moves away, but so slowly that one does not feel it is moving. And three weeks after my arrival in Paris, I wrote to Jim from the Hotel Voltaire, Quai Voltaire, asking him if he would come over and stay with me. I had a room, which I did not use, and he was welcome to it. But he wrote, saying that he could not come over to Paris at present, and I was very much hurt by his ironical thanks for the room, which I could not use. But it is the room that one does not use, one offers a friend, not one's own bedroom, I said, and continued to consider his rude letter, wondering what had provoked it, without being able to discover any reason. Some months later he wrote again, this time in French, and to prove to me that it was possible for an Englishman to write French, I took the letter out of my pocket, and while they scanned it, picking out the English locutions, it struck me that if Jim was mistaken about his French, he might well be mistaken about his pictures, and to convince myself of their worth, I described the compositions to Julie and Julius Caesar, overturning the altar of the Jews, the bridle of Tremaine, Cain shielding his wife from wild beasts, and Julian listened indulgently over many cups of coffee. He was becoming my intimate friend, allowing me to take him out to dinner and treat him to the theatre. I was a little personage in his circle when a tall young man came into the studio late one afternoon, Lewis Weldon Hawkins it was, and as we went with him to the café to drink a bowl of punch, the custom of the studio was that every newcomer should stand a bowl of punch, He turned and spoke to me in English, asking me, after a few remarks, if we had not met in Jim Brown's studio. The name of Jim Brown carried me back to Prince's Gardens, and the moment when Jim introduced me to a tall young man whom I did not altogether like, so contemptuous was he of Jim's genius, and of me when I invited him to come forward and tell me what he thought of Cain shielding his wife from wild beasts. He was Jim's cousin, and therefore, in a roundabout way, my cousin. He had come over to London with a young Frenchwoman whom he called Louise, and I remembered Jim saying, I hope you have turned out something, meaning that he hoped that Louise had painted a picture, for he had left the Navy to study painting. But the young man had answered, I don't know if I have turned out anything, but I have turned up a good deal, an answer which displeased me. There was no time to remember any more. We had arrived at the café, the conversation had become general, and the first thing that was borne in upon me was Lewis spoke French like a Frenchman. His thoughts moved in the language, which was not extraordinary, since he was born in Brussels, and when we returned to the studio, the whole studio gathered about his easel and admired his audacity, for he had sketched in the model and the entire background, the stove that kept the model warm, the screen behind which he dressed and undressed, and the yellow curtain which sheltered him from the drafts. The elders, Renu and boucher de Mauville, saw through Lewis's faculty to them it was mere duchy, ignorance giving itself airs, but to me, who could not express myself at all, and who spent a whole week stuttering and stammering through a wretched drawing, the hour's work on Lewis's canvas was almost as wonderful as one of Jim's pictures. His manners were winning and easy. He crossed the studio with a deference proper in a newcomer, and seating himself in front of my drawing, he advised me, and at five o'clock when the studio closed, we went away together in a carriage, for he wanted to show me his studio, which was far away behind the du Nord, too far to walk. Moreover, he was in a hurry, but he seemed to forget his hurry when we reached the place Morbidus, remembering suddenly that he had to see Louise, who lived in the Rue Morbideux, and it being always pleasant to see a woman, I was disappointed when the concierge said that Madame was not at home, but another friend of his lived up there, up the street. She was not at home either, so he scribbled a note on the concierge's lodge, and bethought himself of another. She too was out. Mais mon Monstre, la bon est No, he was in a hurry. He scribbled another note. He dashed into the cab again, but he must speak with Dash. We jumped out, and in the middle of the low-ceilinged room, he engaged in conversation with a lady who came from her bedroom, somewhat flurried in a poignure. She spoke to me in English, but as soon as she turned to see Louis, she dropped into French, which she seemed to speak very well, for I noticed that instead of saying, as I should have said, she said, "J'ai vu A phrase which I did not know and kept chewing all the way to his studio while he confided to me that he was now living with an English girl who had come over with a theatrical company to Brussels. He was expecting her to call for him. So, there was female society to look forward to, and the carriage drew up at the door of the house in which he was living. "'You won't have to go up many stairs. I am on the Entresol,' he said. "'His studio was a large room with a great fireplace, in which he had hung an iron pot on a chain. "'The fireplace had cost 750 francs. 750 francs represented no actual sum of money to me. "'It was a pitiful thing to have to turn francs into pounds and to have to ask if any cooking was done in the pot, "'for, of course, I should have known the pot and chain.' were decorative effect, as were the Turkish lamps and draperies, as indeed everything in the room was, including Lewis himself, especially when he took a fiddle from the wall and began playing. Stradel's Chant d'Eugliese, do you know it? Alas, I didn't, and after hearing in my wonderment increased, for Lewis said that he did not know a note of music, but he had met a vagrant once who had picked up some knowledge of the fiddle in half an hour. He soon wearied of the fiddle, and going to the small organy, strum snatches of Verde's Requiem, "'Till a young girl entered the room out of breath. "'Louis! "'She stopped suddenly on seeing me, and turning his head, "'he introduced me to the beautiful girl, "'and one in the bloom of her first beauty, "'a tall girl of seventeen or eighteen, with brown eyes and fair hair. "'She had come to fetch Louis to dinner, "'and it occurred to me that she might be disappointed at finding me with Louis. "'But he assured me that they would be glad of my company "'if they—if I didn't mind f- dining at Alphonsine's "'Not at least. "'But who was Alphonsine? "'An old lie love,' he said, "'who gathered all her friends around her table at Diotte. "'At three francs and a half, his supercilious style delighted me, "'and he left me talking to Alice while he crossed the street "'in order some coals at the Charbonnerie, "'and he looked such a fine fellow as he stepped from one paving stone to the other "'that Alice could not restrain her admiration. "'What a toff he is!' A toff he was, not a tailor's toff, but one of nature's toffs, a tall, thin young man and yet powerful. His long arms could no doubt deal a swinging blow on occasions, and in a race his long legs would have carried him past many a competitor. His shoulders were ample, and his small face was not spoiled by a broken nose. He must have told me how his nose was broken, I have forgotten, but in my memory of him... It contrasted happily with the soft violets, giving character to the face, a face which absorbed and interested me all the evening, my eyes returning to him again and again as he leaned across the table, telling stories in fluent French, delighting everybody, the men as well as the women, assembled under the awning. What is he saying? Alice asked me. I could not tell her, alas, he thinks he is such a fine man that all he would have to do would be to strip himself naked and walk into a woman's room for her to fall down and adore him. I begged her to tell me about Marie Peregrine. You admire her, don't you? Well, she'll cost you a thousand francs, but if you were a voyou, What's a voyou? A cad. You could have her for nothing. And if she is rich, why does she come here? "'Are all the women here worth a thousand francs?' Alice laughed scornfully and broke off the conversation and applied herself to trying to understand what Louis was saying. "'I wonder why she came here. "'She must have left the Grand Duke.' "'What Grand Duke?' "'All Dukes are the same. Do, you, do hold your tongue.' Louis told me afterwards that Marie had been to Russia "'and had had hundreds of thousands of francs from the Grand Duke.' but she liked Les de Courtier better and returned to them when she was bored. She had just come back from Russia and was spending her earnings in the rue Rubrida and intoxicated with the romance of the story, I begged of Lewis to tell me more about her. But he had told me all he knew and Alice sat very much annoyed for she was just as pretty a girl as Marie Pellegrin and if she had the luck to be introduced to Grand Dukes, she would know how to put her money to better use. We were in a Victoria, for Lewis had proposed an excursion to Bouliere, and a train of cabs crossed Paris over the bridge down the Rue de Bonc and round the Luxembourg. But I cannot write with the same insight and sympathy of the Belle Bouliaire as I did of the L'Elysée Montmartre, in the story entitled The End of Mary Pellegrin. I am a Martin and Bouliere unhallowed by memories rises up a mere externality a crowd pushing through the tables and chairs set under trees, sweating waiters doing their best, and the band under cover, a sort of exaggerated shed, into which one walked from the garden. I never danced at Bullier, and it matters little to me that the finest can can dances assembled there, pokers and waltzes were looked upon as a kind of waste of time, but the moment the band struck up a quadrille, the crowd formed in dense rings, and the merits of the kickers were discussed as eagerly as the torridas in Madrid and Seville. The grisettes of the quarter advanced kicking furiously, and about one in the morning the company separated through the Latin Quarter and Montmartreans, returning by themselves, for nothing was more rare than a Montmartrean to bring a grisette back with him, the girls being with one accord faithful to their quarter. Louis and Alice dropped me at the Hotel de Risse, Rusi going on themselves to the Rue Saint-Denis, somewhere between the boulevard Sebastopol and the Gare du Nord, I think. My last words to him were, you'll be sure to be at the studio tomorrow, for I was anxious that Julian should see my cousin's picture, and I can see myself still bringing him round to Louis's easel, an instinctive fellow Julian was, divining at once a useful ally in Lewis, and to make sure of him, Julian proposed a few weeks later that we, Lewis, myself, Julian, Renaud, Boutet de Monvel, and a few others, should take the first boat next Sunday morning to Basmeudon, the landscape painters, he said, would find some pretty motifs along the banks of the scene and others could go for a walk, and I remember that Arunov and Buna Monno went off together and returned an hour later, saying that they had found nothing and tempted them, whereas Lewis, had been immediately struck by the picturesque ascension of the staircase leading up from the river to the village, was a jealousy that stayed them from admiring his facility. I asked myself, for they did not seem to admire the picture that Lewis had nearly completed on a panel, bestowing only a casual glance at it. They begged to talk about breakfast. But Lewis could not be persuaded to lay aside his palette overflowing with bitumen and cadmium yellow. He continued to add bits of drawing and I to admire the perspective and to wonder how he did it. Alice watched him from under the sunshade, and Julian caught my serious attention when he said all the faculty will go for nothing if he doesn't come to work at the studio. We found the others waiting for us at the door of the restaurant, very impatient and to my delight our table was laid under the trellis and green leaves and my white table appealed to my imagination and the cutlets and the omelettes linger in my memory and the races that we ran in the evening when the bats came out, Lewis beating me a little in one race for his legs were longer but only just beating me Whereupon one whose name I cannot recall challenged me to a race with him for a bottle of champagne and Lewis whispered, take him on and you'll run away from him. And to my surprise Lewis's judgment turned out right, my competitor gave up after a few yards. We drank his champagne, and the boat took us back to Paris. All a little conscious that the last night lights of a happy day were dying, the day that I felt I should never forget. We shall be thinking of this day when we are old men, I said to Lewis, and was ashamed for a moment of my emotion. we He had not heard. He was talking to Alice. The night gathered about the green banks of the scene, and the dim poplars struck through the last bar, of light, which seemed as if it could not die. The month being June, it lingered between grey clouds till the boat had passed under the first bridge. And then, bridge after bridge, the landing, the separations, each one returning to his bed, his mind filled with remembrances of the blue air, the flowing water, the swaying trees. Did Alice return with Lewis? I think so. She was certainly with us a few weeks later, for Lewis had caught sight of a picturesque corner and was full of scorn of runoff and Boutet. "'de Monvel, who had missed it, "'and we three returned to bus, moved on, for Lewis to paint it. "'But the scene was so sunny that morning "'we arrived that a swim suggested itself to Lewis, "'and a boat was hired, "'and a boatman rowed us to the near side of an island. "'Alice, who could not swim at all, "'remained in the shallows with me "'and could swim only a little, "'and splashing about together we watched "'Lewis disporting himself in midstream, "'Breasting the current, head upreared, turning over on his side and rushing through the water like some great fish. We admired him until he passed behind the island, and then Alice would have, have me teach her to swim. We were getting on nicely when, in sport, I threatened to duck her. She screamed to me to let her go, and as soon as I had lost hold of her, she went under, coming f- up unconscious, though she had not been under for the water for more than fi- a few seconds.' The boatman came to my assistance quickly, and Lewis came swimming by, and together we got her into the boat. Good God, Lewis, try to bring her to, I cried, falling on my knees up beside her, trembling, terribly frightened, for Lewis was so angry with me that I could not doubt that he would pitch me into the river if he failed to revive her. At last she opened her eyes, and after a tender scene between her and Lewis, we rowed back to the inn, where her beauty inspired much commiseration. A day has been wasted, Lewis said, for his mind was fixed upon the corner he had selected, and he went away next morning without me, the boat not being large enough to hold two painters. You don't want to paint. You had better remain and talk to Alice, but it was impossible to persuade Alice out of her bed, and feeling, I suppose, that I was was a negligible quantity in lovers in art, she invited me some after some hesitation into her room and we used to gossip there every morning until when lewis went away to paint until gossip busied itself with us and one day he told us that he was returning to paris the next day we could see that something had gone wrong and at last we got the truth out of him people at the inn had begun to notice that i went to alice's room as soon as he went out painting Alice lost her temper quickly. I protested, and Lewis said, Of course, I know she wouldn't have anything to do with you. All the same, but I don't wish to pass for a cuckold. A very rude answer I felt this to be, but held my tongue. And we returned to Paris next day, all three rather angry and disappointed. And Lewis discouraged for his pictures had not turned out well. It had indeed turned out so badly that landscape painting was not mentioned again that summer. And it was not until the fall that he began to speak of Curnay, a beautiful uh, country celebrated among painters, not more than 50 or 60 kilometres from Paris. His suggestion was that we might go there for a week, and I consented, for I wanted to see the inn whose walls had been decorated by every painter that had stayed there, if he proposed to pay his bill with a picture. And if the innkeeper would accept poems from me in exchange for what I owed him. You see, now I have told you the truth, he said as soon as we entered the inn. And I looked round the room, seeing every subject that had ever been treated, dashed here and there. Seascapes, horses, ploughing, battle pieces, ravens, parrots, ladies in their shifts amid pillows, swine on the hillside. And herds of cattle winding through fields, a perch and wood showing aloft. On a hillside, which Lewis said was worth all the other pictures put together, and here and there, wait, sorry, and he mentioned the name of the painter of a la- large flower piece. And we should have admired his being his longer if the innkeeper had not been at our heels waiting for us to choose our rooms. It may have been for reasons of economy that we elected to sleep in the same room. It may have been that the innkeeper had only one room to offer us. For good or evil reasons, we slept in the same room, of that I am sure, and I was awakened in the middle of the night by Lewis trying to find matches to light a candle. He He was going into the backyard, a dog began to bark, and Alice sat up quaking, beseeching me to go to Lewis's help and save him from being devoured. It seemed to me that I had better awaken the innkeeper and while I was standing in the middle of the floor wondering what had better be done, Lewis returned. The dog had rushed at him but fortunately was on a chain. But Lewis, if you had been with, within reach or if the chain had snapped and the depth of her passion may be judged... From the discussion that arose between her and me as to what one would do if one had to eat something incredibly nasty, Alice's point was that it mattered a great deal from whence the nastiness came. If it came from Lewis, she would sooner eat a pound than a pinch if it came from me. And she woke up Lewis to ask him if he would not return her the compliment, and was very angry when he said that a crap was the same all over the world and he would prefer to swallow a pinch rather than a pound, no matter who owned it. We certainly pigged it together, pigs no doubt, but aspiring pigs, who went out in the morning to the borders of the lake to paint. Lewis was able to get down a large willow tree in the foreground, retaining some parts of the view, rejecting others. Myself quite uninterested in trying to arrange the lakes as Coro might have arranged it, but I unable to express myself fumbling with the beautiful outline of the shore which I could not fit into the canvas till Alice, who had not risen so early as we, came to meet us and joined in Lewis's criticism of my abortive drawings. Giggling under her parasol and echoing Lewis's opinions, of course there must be a willow tree and a man in a boat to make a picture. Give me your charcoal, and he began to recompose bringing the edge of the wood into my canvas. Don't you see? No, Lewis, I don't see. The edge of the wood doesn't come into my vision. It should come in to make a picture. And he strove hard, vulgarizing what I had done and doing this so successfully that in the end he had to hand me back my pencil, saying he was sorry that perhaps it was better the way I had it. Alice did not think so, and we strolled over to admire Lewis's work, which captured all her admiration. I think that is how Caro would have seen it, he said, and we watched the slate-coloured lake amid its autumn tints and sedges and returned to Paris a few days afterwards without a picture to continue. Good heavens, it's twelve o'clock and I've been sitting here dreaming since ten and my eyes went to the large fat volume on the table, not one line of which I had read. And that's the end of chapter uh, three. All right, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.